I can't remember what that triangle is called. Does anybody remember? It's kind of an optical illusion. It's got a name. And if you stare at it, it'll kind of mess with you a little bit, right? You're seeing and you're trying to figure out which way it goes. Maybe you've seen something like that with stairs. And I titled this message, Making Sense of It. This is the first of a, a two-part message series titled Making Sense of It. And this week, we're going to look at the challenge of understanding and describing the incomprehensible aspects of God. And there are many. These things that are beyond our fathom, beyond our understanding, beyond our, our sense of, of, of what it means, these things that are so great. Next week, we're going to take it a little more personal level and look at the challenge of understanding and describing our personal encounters with God, right? And we have these. How do we recognize these? And how do we express these, just these powerful, joyful moments that, again, it could be anything from how wonderful it is or how in the world am I feeling peace and confidence, when all this stuff is going on around me. So next week is going to be a little more personal level. This week we're going to spend a lot more time in the Word. And because of the number of verses, I will refer to what they are, but some of them I'll just kind of go over. And so if you would like a list of the verses I'm referencing, let me know. I'd be happy to, to provide that to you. But I want to begin by considering the characteristics of God as revealed through the Bible. And there are many of them, but for this week's message, the Bible is going to be our source of information about the character of God. And when we dive into our discussion about our personal experience with God next week, those will be the source of information as we talk about how I know these things to be true because what I've seen him do in, around, and through me. And, and we're going to take both parts of this and put it into a more complete picture of who God is. So let's begin. God is infinite, right? Hard to imagine anything that, that goes on forever. There was no end, no beginning. It's just there. Colossians 1.17 says... God is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Psalms 147.5, great is our Lord in abundant power. His understanding is beyond measure, right? That doesn't make sense. There's got to be a, a measure, a start, a finish. <coughs> and of course, the profound words of John 1, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Before all this stuff that was created, there was, there was God. And it's hard to imagine that. How do you make sense of, of something that's infinite? It just is. And I challenged, I did a, a wedding about a year ago now, and, and it was um, a coworker of mine's daughter was there, and I challenged her to ask me a tough question. She got me. She got me. She's like, if God made everything, who made God? And how do you say it? Like, it's just hard to explain that God just was. I mean, he's already here. Maybe, maybe there is a beginning that we don't understand, but, but the importance is God was here, is always here, and always will be here. It's hard to make sense of, of that. How about God is unchanging? Now, this is one I love because this is a promise I hang my faith on, right? God's unchanging. So everything he said in this book, everything he promised, all the good that he said, all the, all the promises he made to, to look out for you and to do good for you and to, to care and love you and, and all this, the rules of, of what his expectations are, unchanging, right? It's not this moving target. This is what it is. That doesn't make it easy, but it makes it simple. I love that. God is unchanging. God's promise to us through the prophet Malachi, this is from 3.6. He says, I, the Lord, do not change so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I keep my covenant promises, is what he's saying. How do you make sense of an unchanging nature? Because you wonder, is there no value in, in trying to influence or change God's mind? That's a sermon for another time. Does prayer really change things for a God that is unchanging and is fixed on what his mission is? 
We'll talk about that. I will tell you that prayer does change things. It does. But God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Right? How do you explain something that is that powerful? In chapter 33, verse 6, the psalmist writes, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. So powerful that everything was created from words. The prophet Jeremiah 32, 7, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Boy, I find comfort in that. To which God responds later in verse 27, Jeremiah, I am the Lord. I am the God of every person on earth. And I love that. It's like, it doesn't matter if they believe in me. I still am who I am. I still made them. He says, you know that nothing is impossible for me. Wow. I love that. If the God that loves me and cares me and cares about you and wants to do good for you can do anything, nothing is impossible. Boy, that's the team I want to be on. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. How do you make sense of something that is immeasurable more than we can even imagine? Job had this, had to get reminded a little bit of this. He, if you've re- read the book of Job, there's this back and forth dialogue where it's mostly Job just kind of complaining, he's lamenting, and finally just God just says, okay, I'm gonna give you a couple chapters to remind you of all the things I've done, know and understand that you have no idea, you cannot grasp. There's just that much stuff. And, and to that point, we can take things like um, the difference between making and creating, right? When we read, when we talk about making things, right? We, it's the process of taking materials and, and you can make it, right? I can take wood and, and graphite and rubber and make a pencil, right? I make it. And this is based on stuff that God has provided. He, he's provided wood and graphite and nature and, and rubber and, and all the elements that go into the things we make. But to create, the Hebrew word is bara. And that is something from nothing to bring into existence. We can make lots of stuff, but only God can create. That's power. How do you understand and make sense of that? God is omniscient, all-knowing. Isaiah says, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times what is still to come. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. All knowing, all powerful. Psalmist writes 139.4, even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. Boy, that's convicting. Even if I finally do that thing that you tell me to do to stop and bite my tongue, right? Don't say that. God already knew what I was thinking, right? Psalm 44.21, would not God, would not God find this out, for he knows the secrets of the heart, right? You really need to be pure of heart, pure of spirit in this. God knows what's on your heart. So you're not fooling anybody. You're not fooling God if you're worried about something and, and act like things are okay. Take it to him. If you act like you're not holding a grudge or resentment or withholding forgiveness, God knows your heart. He knows the word that you, you choke back. But how do you make sense of all-knowing? know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Psalmist again writes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You know, that's comforting and and concerning at the same time. I I will never go anywhere 
alone. God is always with me. Every place I go, everything I do, God is with me, especially if I invite him and take him there, right? But what about those places we shouldn't go, right? That's convicting. He already knows my thought. He knows my heart. He knows my words. Now he knows where I'm at. First Corinthians third sixteen. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God is so much everywhere that He's within you. How do you make sense of that? God is wise; He's full of perfect wisdom. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Romans eleven thirty three writes: How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable His ways. How do you make sense of perfect wisdom, perfect understanding? God is faithful. God is good. God is just. God is merciful, passionate, and kind. And he's gracious. And he's loving. When John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How about this? On your best day, could you make this statement? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We love our children. We love our spouses. We love ourselves. Could you love someone so much to make a sacrifice for them? That doesn't make sense. That is so hard to fathom. God is holy. We learned last week and the week before. Holy means to have something set apart. God is holy and what sets him apart is his pureness, his righteousness. All these things we're talking about. That's what makes him holy. To that extent, you know, Exodus 3 talks about Moses and the burning bush. We know this from, from right, Sunday school as a child. There's the burning bush and it's not being consumed and Moses approaches. And God says from this, but do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground, right? And then it goes on, it says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the one true God. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God is so holy and perfect that people were afraid to look at it. Now, how do you make sense of something so pure and beautiful that you can't stand to look? Even in the biblical description of these aspects of God, the remain beyond description. It even says that, you know, you can't imagine. But if we pause and consider the words as we read them, we're inclined to ask the question, how how can that be true? How can anyone love someone that much? How can someone stay so, so pure and good and focused on their promise that they won't be swayed by anyone? No matter how much I mess up, he won't stop loving me or you. No matter what I, what I do or where I go, he says, I'm there with you. How can that be true? And I think it's okay to ask questions. I really do. But take the time to seek the answer. Curiosity in itself isn't really a lack of faith, right? And seeking and satisfying those questions, it bolsters your faith. God says, test me in some of these things, right? I'm saying it's okay to say, God, how can that be? Is that true? You know what? Yeah. This week we're talking about where the Bible says. Next week we're going to talk about how your life says. Yeah, it's absolutely true. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul says, test everything. And hold on to what is good. See, God wants you to grow in both understanding and in faith. And this is a process, right? We, we trust him and, and he got us through this. We know, okay, I, I, I can do that. So, so now it takes a little more because I know God will be with me in these situations, whatever it may be. 
But now there's this bigger thing. God, he's still there. And guess what? He was or he is or he will be. And now little less faith is required because God has delivered his promise. I know it. I believe it. I have that much faith. God says, I'm going to grow you a little more. You know those things you aren't liking, the things you're praying against? He goes, I'm going to stretch your faith because I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to grow you. And, and the more we learn about the things that we don't know and fully comprehend about God, the more of those things are revealed. And that is so cool. I want to take the remainder of the message time to look at the ways the Bible uses tools to, to help us make sense, to help us understand some of these things that are immeasurable, unfathomable, unrelatable. And then we're going to conclude with some, maybe some contemporary metaphors of our own device. But the Bible uses reference of the time to describe God. These are, a lot of this is written in, well, obviously, a lot, all of it's written in previous times, thousands of years ago. And, and there are some things that are a little harder to relate to now. But if a couple weeks ago we talked about the full armor of God. Now, we don't have people standing on the corner in armor for us to go, I, I know what it means. When we read about the full armor of God, we have to picture something in our mind that we had seen somewhere, a movie, a cartoon, maybe, maybe an illustration of this verse. But those were the tools and the weapons made available, um, you know, that are made available to us in faith in God, right? The shield, the, the sword, those elements, these these examples, these metaphors. And each individual clothing piece are all part of the Roman soldier, which was literally on the street corner at that time. Everyone who read Paul's letters knew what the full armor of a Roman centurion was. And then go, oh, this is what it means in God's kingdom. This is what the helmet of salvation is. This is right. And this is, I, I know these things. That was Ephesians 6, really gets into that. And we, we went over that in a message uh, a couple weeks ago. How about this? The Lord is my shepherd. Now, we don't have a lot of shepherds running around these days. And we still can kind of picture what that means. But the illustration of the good shepherd and the sheep of the flock were certainly common in that day. And, and the 23rd Psalm, which we studied a couple weeks ago, and we really got into uh, for several weeks on our Wednesday night. In fact, I've got this book. It's written by an actual shepherd, a modern shepherd who explains what this means to do this and how this is used and, and why the shepherds went about the way they did. And I'd be happy to loan it to you. And you understand a little more that the people of that time, when David wrote the 23rd Psalm, when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I'm a sheep, that that's not an insult. That is a loving, caring person who has dedicated every moment of their time, energy, and life to your care to the extent that they will go and rescue you and keep you safe and make decisions on how to get you to the place where you need to be. The clay and the potter, right? I haven't done anything with clay since elementary school, right? The little wheel and all that stuff, maybe Play-Doh, but, but the craftsman that creates and molds things of usefulness and value, right? They had pottery that time. And it was a, a real skill to make things of value and utility, uh, usefulness. Isaiah 6, 4, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. You know, we're saying mold us, work us into what you want us to be. We did a fun little exercise. It's been a couple years ago. But you guys, there was a show on called Nailed It. Do you remember that show? They like give people these baking challenges and you had to make a cake or whatever it was. It looked just like that for fun. We did that one Sunday here. I remember Donna, you were icing a cookie and, and we had cupcakes and we were just trying to make these things. And 
they were delicious, but I'll be honest, like, we're not artists, right? We're not anything like that. And, and the Sunday message was talking about how God calls us to do this. He's given us an example, but even at our best efforts, we don't quite nail it, right? So the clay and the potter, we ask him to mold us because we can't do as well ourselves. And the rock, the cornerstone, these are elemental building pieces, and now we have drywall and plaster and bricks. But when you were building things out of stone, those were solid pieces that, that really formed the foundation and gave the building its strength. And the, and the cornerstone was this piece that locked it all together, that really made it secure. Psalm 18.2, it says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. 1 Peter 2.7 refers to a, a First Testament prophecy fulfilled by Jesus. It says, the stone that the builders rejected, right? It wasn't good enough for this building. It says, this one has become the cornerstone. Jesus Christ became the cornerstone of the church. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, Right? But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of the household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Christ himself as chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirits. Even Satan, to help understand that is cast as a lion or a wolf or a serpent, right? These crafty, deadly creatures were used to describe him as, as something cunning that might sneak in or, or wait to devour the weak or pick from the edge. And people understood this because they knew that those were the hazards of the day. You know, Jesus, even after a lot of these psalms and stuff were written, here comes Jesus, and he sought to describe these things that he was aware of, yet he knew we couldn't comprehend. You know, I've, I've got this intimate relationship with my Father God. How do I teach you these things? So he used literary, tool, literary tools such as allegory and parables to help us. And, and the best teaching of Jesus, we're done through parables. It's like a parable is like a metaphor, but it, use, it uses concrete experiences to illustrate something that's abstract, right? He said, this is like this, but it goes on to be a, a little bit of a longer, more coherent narrative instead of just a, a sentence. And we think of things like the Good Samaritan, the, the prodigal son, the lost sheep. All these could, could be real experiences and involving real people. But, but Jesus uses his illustrations of being a good neighbor, of God's love for us, of us loving each other, and God's unending desire to have a relationship with us, among, among other things, right? Yes, the prodigal son could have been a story. You could have signed a name to it. It may have been very real. Probably actually did happen at some point in history. But, but Jesus says this parable and he says, God is the father and you are the one who wants all this stuff and ran away and blew it. But he says, welcome home, my child. And then we start to understand what unconditional love is like, what grace and forgiveness is like, what setting aside pride is like as we come back and say, I'm sorry. I wanted so much, and I know that you'll take care of me. He also used standard metaphors like referring to the wineskin or the mustard seed, right? If you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, and I was, 
I didn't have one. I was going to pick everything, but uh, you wouldn't be able to see it anyway. So I can tell you, I've got a mustard seed right here. It is so tiny. And he says, that's how little faith it takes. You know, if you just have the faith of that, you're invoking the power of God. Jesus even used tools to describe his purpose, comparing himself to bread, to being a shepherd, to, to being a light, to being a vine. Because such lightness allowed him to say complex things in a simple manner, right? I am the bread of life. No, I'm not literally bread. But bread is a staple of the diet. He who comes to me will never be hungry, right? Spiritually fed. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus didn't walk around glowing. I suppose he could. Maybe he did. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I am the light of the path. Everywhere you go, if you follow me, you will not be in darkness. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Wow. I am the true vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Now that makes sense, right? You know, if we had flowers on the altar this morning, they're beautiful. We'd cut them off the plant and we'd keep them a while, you know, as we the water. But at some point, remove from the plant itself it dies. And this was Jesus saying, look, you, you've seen the vines around. You know what it's like. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Stay attached to me and you will be healthy. And then he talks about us the same way. You're the salt of the earth. Salt loses its saltiness, then it's of no value. You're the light of the world, right? He was the light of the world. Now he's saying, you're the light of the world. And back you read this, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Right? We don't take this light and cover it. Now he's not saying literally cover yourselves. He's saying, listen, if, if you are in me and you are on fire for me and you've got this good news of the gospel to share about love and forgiveness, he goes, go out. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't sit in the pew. Don't stay at home. Go into the world. Be that light. So we read Paul letters to early Christians throughout the region. We hear the same kind of method. Paul likens Christianity or Christian life to running a race. Now that sounds horrible to me. I clearly could use more running. But he's saying, you know, it's a, it's a process. It's a thing you gotta do. Run the race as if you're going for the prize. He used wages as a metaphor for the consequences and it costs, right? We can all relate to that. Hand out money, yeah, it costs. There are consequences for the things we do. We're paying that out. And he calls the church the body of Christ. And I love this. He talks about each body has its purpose and its part. So each one of us has a purpose, a part, a gift, an ability, a talent that we bring here. And the body needs all of its parts. In fact, the Bible even uses metaphors to describe itself, right? The Bible, the word is a lamp to our feet. It guides our path. The word is a sword, right? It, it separates things, like good from bad, right from wrong, if you know it. And God's love and nature seems like this great mystery, but it isn't supposed to be. God didn't want to be elusive. He doesn't want to be on a, you know, something you can't understand, comprehend, or, or even achieve. Because these aspects of his character, they're, they're more expansive, more perfect than we can wrap our brains around. That's the way it is. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want you to know him. In fact, he wants you to know him. Psalm 32.8, uh, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, 
or they will not come to you. He said, I want you to know. I want you to understand what's going on and why these things must do. Does that sound like a good parent, right? Not a master, not a, not a control and force, but a loving parent. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast their wisdom or the strong boast for their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but the one who boasts, boasts about this. So he's saying, this is what's important. That they have the understanding to know me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justiceness, and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight. Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me and those who seek me. They will find me. He's not elusive. He's not trying to trick us with some mind game more than we can understand. It's just simply he's that much greater. But he says, I want you to figure out what that means. God is not one to lord his power and control over you. He wants you to come into his presence and have a relationship with him because that's what you want to happen as well, right? He wants us in heaven just as badly as we want to be there. And he provided us tools to understand him. Second Timothy says, all parts of the scripture are useful. And again, Psalm 119, it's a lamp to our feet. That's our guidebook, right? It's an open book test this life we're in. So there's something we can use to help us understand more contemporary, right? A lamp to our feet would be like a flashlight. You know, God's presence being everywhere. I, I always likened it to love. I'm sorry, to air, right? Air is here. God's everywhere. His love is here. You can't feel it. But you know, with the ceiling fans on, you might feel it because it's moving. When God moves, we feel it. When, when love moves around and between people, you feel it. It's always there, but it's, when it moves, you can, you can sense it. You don't have mustard seeds, but I love looking at the strawberry and those little tiny seeds. And each one of those can make an additional plant and create more berries. But what's cool to me is in one, each one of those seeds is all the DNA, all the created stuff to make something more. God created that seed. So it's not just about the size of the seed that makes that kind of faith, but the power of that little, little speck. And, and again, this is a parable that says, now you put that in good soil and it flourishes, right? When God puts that in a good heart, it flourishes. When God puts it in a heart that's a little shallow, yeah, it grows for a bit, but it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And if we shut it out, that seed goes nowhere. Sherry shared something with me this week and it was is kind of a, a metaphor about popcorn. And I love this because she loves popcorn. Um, <laughs> But inside each little kernel of popcorn is this microscopic little bit of moisture, right? And when you heat it up just right, pow, you get the popcorn, right? It goes from this hard little thing to this white thing that she just eviscerates with butter and salt to the point you can't eat it. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, I digress. But it's amazing. But when you think about that, when you think about that, it's, it has to, it's inside already. And something has to come at it from outside to make that what's inside go. 1 Corinthians 3 says, I planted the seed, Apollos. This is Paul writing. Apollos was one of the, the people that Paul had taught. It says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. We've got that stuff within us. God, come in. Get that little molecule excited so I can explode. 
I used to love doing children's sermons, and, and one of the big challenges was, was always, and I'm talking about the old school ones, I don't know if you remember this, like in the middle of the service, the kids would kind of come up front, and you'd like give them a challenge, like bring something with you, and I'm going to talk about God, whatever it may be, and they bring the most, the strangest little toys and things, and that's so much fun to challenge yourself to think, how is this like God or the kingdom or all that, and it's fun. And we can use these moments. We can use these stories. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So how do I, how do I, I'm going to conclude here. By saying, how do we understand the unexplainable when Bible itself uses terms like what no eye has seen, what no mind has imagined? How do we make sense of the greatness and unconditional loving nature of God when, when we struggle with the most basic aspects of grace, compassion, and forgiveness, right? I don't know how he does it because I can't. Right? We ask God for wisdom and we lean on the tools that he's provided for education and growth. Scripture being the main one. Life experiences being the other. We look for lessons in the everyday and we consider the items and the events that Jesus used to teach us. We, t- we took a very quick pass of over a dozen or so characteristics of God and, and believe me, that's a short list. But which one of those do you need to hear? and understand and seek at this moment in time. Whatever's going on in your life or, or maybe better yet, what might be coming down the road this week. Did you need to be reminded of his unconditional love and, and dive deeper into what does unconditional love mean? Or is it grace and mercy? Lord, help me understand how much grace and mercy you're offering me and how much I need. Is it your unchanging nature, right? that you're not going to break your promises to me. I want to challenge you this week to ask yourself, which one of these do I need to rely on this week? You know, which one do I need to have in my back pocket for the next time something happens? And I need to be reminded of this. What is it in my life that serves as a physical reminder to me of, of whatever that may be? And if you're having trouble working through this on your reach out to me. I would love nothing more than to come alongside you and let's figure this thing out. It's so, so fun. It's such a blessing. But of all the metaphors, of all the symbolism used in the Bible and by Jesus, I think the greatest is the elements of communion, right? Jesus said he was the, the bread, right? The bread of life. And he said, come to me, you will never be hungry. We talk about spiritually being fed. But we also know on the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And he said, this is my body. And in doing this, he filled, fulfilled a prophecy, said, the lamb will be slain. The unblemished, the, the perfect one will be scarred, torn apart for our iniquities. His body broken for, for us. And he used another one when he said the wine that he poured. And he gave thanks. And you have to remember, this is God in the flesh, a son of God, deeply and intimately connected with God. And, and if, if he needs to pray, to God. If he needs to be thankful to God, how much more do we? So he gave thanks and he, and he poured the wine and he said, this is my blood, right? A metaphor. This is my blood. He said, it's shed for you. He said, this seals the new covenant. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. God is unchanging. God is unchanging. And so he offers an invitation to us, every single one of us today, He says, come to the table. Come to the table and accept the sacrifice. Accept the symbols of what this is. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Right? 
And sometimes we don't fully understand what that means. So we pause and, and before we, we take communion, we pray and we say, Lord, enter our hearts. What do I need to bring to the table and, and let go of, right? This is the place. You don't leave that junk at the door. You bring it here and you leave it on the altar. That's what you do. Let's make that our prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, how in the world do we understand something so great and so powerful where we really just can't fathom the stuff? And, and even your word describes you as beyond measure, more than we can imagine. But Lord, you don't do that to build a barrier between us. You do that to incite this curiosity within us. So we seek you more. We want to know more. We want to know how. We want to know why. And more importantly, we want to know how we can get that for ourselves. And Lord, you sent your son. And he explains so much of this. As we unravel the mysteries of the parables and the allegories and the metaphors and, and we learn thousands of years later, we're still trying to learn what that means. And we're constantly amazed by who you are and what you've done for us and what you continue to do. Lord, we thank you for your nature, your un, unfathomable nature and the, and the ultimate goodness and, of course, the ultimate sacrifice. That you loved us so much you did the thing that makes no sense to us at all. You gave your son for us. For us. For all the junk that we do wrong. That's your response. That just blows our mind. So Lord, help us to understand what that is. And as we pray for communion, as we, we prepare now, would you move on our hearts to what it is we need to bring and leave so we can walk away feeling what you want us to feel, which is forgiven forgiven. Would you stir within us whatever it is that makes us need to pop so we can leave here changed for what we've heard, experienced, and encountered today. In your son's name I pray. Amen.